Welcome to the Race MotoGP podcast. Toby Moody here to bring you up to date all about MotoGP bikes that have now got, well, 270, 280 horsepower with 157 kilos and they're doing, well, knocking on 220 miles an hour in a straight line. Neil Spaulding is the man to give us all the tech about MotoGP bikes and he is joining me here today because Neil is the MotoGP tech man in an up and down the pit lane. In fact, his website is MotoGPTechnology.com. Go there and buy his book and learn even more than hopefully you'll learn about here today. Neil, hello, sir. Hi. Yes, uh, great to catch up. It's been quite an event the last few races, isn't it? Why me? <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite something. I mean, myself and Simon Patterson, we caught up for another The Race MotoGP podcast the day after round three of MotoGP 2020 after Bruno, and we were we, we just didn't know where to start because it was such a an embarrassment of riches almost to talk about. But uh, let's talk about something technological. Uh, where do I start? I'll go first, if you don't mind. You go for it. Let's start with Honda, shall we? They've lost their golden boy, haven't they, in the shape of Mark Marquez uh, injuring his right arm. So let's take Mark out, which is what we've done. And let's go and have a look at Bruno round three that uh, that happened at the weekend. The leading Honda was Takagi Nakagami, and he was only eighth. Is it really that hard a bike to ride if you're not called Mark Marquez? What's your take on it? Basically, yes. Um, several years ago, they got to the point where Mark was the the only rider that could regularly win. But Cal could get up there. And in the last couple of years, pretty much since Nakamoto-san retired, uh, the, the, the ex-chief engineer, or not chief engineer, the ex-chief, uh, who happened to be a very good engineer, um, and they've, they've allowed the thing to drift to the point where Mark can ride it. Mark's not that interested in having anybody else be able to ride it. It means he gets uh, all the big dibs. But it's not a bad motorcycle, this is the important thing. This is an unbelievably brilliant motorcycle if you're the one that can get it into the zone where it does everything right. And finding that zone is incredibly difficult and requires incredible skills. You've got to be able to move your weight. You've got to be able to basically dance on the thing to get it to do what you want it to do. Um, it's obvious that Honda are certainly electronically providing Nakagami-san with some, with some help. But I don't think, in the end, that he's going to be a replacement Marquez. And that's that's not good for them. That really isn't. Of that, there is absolutely no doubt that he's uh, not going to be a replacement for Marquez. <laughs> Who could be? Uh, Nakagami finished 15 seconds off uh, the win. Sorry, Cal Crutchlow finished six seconds off Marquez's win at Bruneau last year, whereas Nakagami uh, last Sunday was... 12, nearly 13 seconds back. So you can't just say, oh, well, you know, the next Honda is always a way back. I said when Simon and I were talking yesterday, do you know what? I think Brad Binder would have beaten Mark Marquez on Bruno. What what, what, what would be your comment? That's a tough one. It, it, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the Bruno circuit had something to do with the results. It's bumpy. It's not got a lot of grip. Binder has most certainly come of age. The KTM has most certainly come of age. But you've still got to beat the genius of this generation. Albeit the genius of this generation on a motorcycle that may not have shown itself to its best on that circuit. So I think there would have been a race in it. As to who would have come out top, I'm very reluctant to say. I'm very pleased with the result. It's good for the sport, uh, but you can never, you could never count out Mark. Even on the, I mean, he's one of those very, very rare riders that can take a bike that is wrong to its limit. Um, you know, to my mind, there's only three or four of those ever. Stoner was one. Halewood was one. Arguably, Spencer was one. You know, they could take motorcycles that were really finickety and get the best out of them. And I think Mark would have been up there with Binder. 
Absolutely, absolutely. How it would have, have, have shaken out, you know, I've got I've got to take a punt, you know. People say, oh, do you really think that Mark would have been beaten? And I replied to somebody and said, well, he doesn't win all the races he enters. You know, so occasionally no. he does lose, but we will never know when it's... We, we're sort of talking fresh air here. We're talking fresh air. But uh, <clears throat> is is it... It's not a bad bike, though. It's obviously not a bad bike that a lot of the, the kind of Twitterati have been saying. No, it's a focused bike. And it's focused on Mar- Marquez. And where Honda have gone wrong, and I do believe they have gone wrong, is in allowing that to happen. They, they, you know, the project leader's job is to win races, and he's absolutely been delivering. You know, he's put a bike under Marquez that Marquez can use. But there's been no plan B, and plan B is now required. Now, look, I mean, I've, I've got a book here. It's a Honda Motor Company book from the mid or the end of the 80s, um, and it's called A Decade of Continuous Challenges. Uh, they've done about three of these books, one for each of their times in Formula One. Quite fascinating. But what's really good, right at the front, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a section by the, the managing director of Honda, and he quotes um, Sachiro Honda um, before the 1954 Isle of Man TT. And it, it's, it's Honda's whole principle of racing. And I'll read it. Uh, the dream of my youth has been to build an automobile with my own hands and have it dominate world motor racing competition. I'm committed to having Honda Motor Company tackle this formidable task to illustrate the capabilities of Japanese industry to the entire world. I consider it the mission of Honda Motor Company to set a standard of excellence for Japanese industry. Now, these guys aren't just racing for Honda. They are absolutely racing for their country. And they just started a Grand Prix with their two works bikes on the back row of the grid. This, I cannot underestimate, you cannot underestimate the seriousness of this for a few people's careers. You know, somebody's reversed Honda into a position they can't get out of. In some ways, Honda like to allow their engineers to make mistakes in motorsport so they make better products later on. But I honestly think this is going to cost somebody their job. Yes, it, it, a widget here and a widget there is one discussion, but uh, a fundamental problem is another. I mean, what's quite chilling almost about that quote you've read from Sashira Honda is he made that 66 years ago. <laughs> and uh, yes and they are still racing on those prem- absolutely premise. and i go back to the 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 founder of hrc you know aguma san you know he was the warlord he was the man who would say we're doing it this way and we're going to win wayne san necessary faster he said to gardner of all the people gardner didn't have a reply necessary faster so that just seems to have faded a little bit well we've just had another of those uh, warlords in 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 in, um nakamoto-san you know he's a six-time lead engineer on world championship winning bikes went off to formula one worked out they weren't going to win there big financial problem right okay we pull out for now he came back to gps and sorted out a bike that wasn't winning with the 800s we covered it in one of our previous podcasts now he's gone and we're in the management void that follows somebody like that we need that depth of talent we need somebody with a who's capable of taking long-term views instead of just grabbing the wins that are here now and running away and hiding but more importantly not only did nakamoto san go but Livio Supo went, so there was no continuity, arguably. Not not complete, you know, it's yeah, just no, that absolutely. continuity at the very top. Uh, okay, let's be devil's advocate for a minute, if I could. When Michael Schumacher broke his leg at Silverstone in 1999, they really didn't have a plan B. Now, I know there's only two Ferraris on a Formula One grid, not four Hondas on a MotoGP grid. Um, they tried to implement a plan B with Irvine. It didn't work. Valentino Rossi, he broke his leg at Mugello 2010, but Lorenzo was already leading the championship. Um, When Stoner fell ill in 2010, Ducati didn't have a a, a plan B. When Stoner went, 
Ducati didn't have a plan B. It took them, what, six years to win another race. So Well, they did have a plan B. Their problem then was they thought they had the perfect bike and they just needed a better rider. So they got their hard Rossi, then discovered their mistake. Because they stuck with the bike anyway. We could so go on. Yeah. Having a plan B that is going to work yeah, is what yeah. matters. I suppose what I'm trying to say is... Uh, there are more bikes on a MotoGP grid than a car grid, so you've got more spread. You've you've got more places to place your bets. But hindsight, of course, for us journalists, is a wonderful thing. So team principals may be listening to this jumping up and down. But <laughs> Yeah, but I've, I think I've been saying, be careful, you're walking down an alley now. I've been writing it for three years. And they're here. And I, and I, I do feel sorry for anybody in this situation. But there's an element of, I did tell you so, guys, you know. So they, they have got a problem. And, and, and the trouble is, to get out of it, they've got to re-engineer the bike. This isn't a few clickers. This isn't move the forks and juggle it around. It's look at the underlying concept of the vehicle and start again. You know, that's not good. Now, you and I watched the first race together. And you muttered something. And then you brought it back up a few days later about what was going on on the grid. Just explain to people what you told me. Okay, if you go and watch the BT coverage of the first race at Hareth, and you watch the very start when they go down onto the uh, onto the uh, grid, the cameras on Marquez's Honda. And it starts off, and the mechanics are quite happy with the camera looking really closely at the bike. Then all of a sudden, people are jockeying to get in the way of the camera. And something's going on with the bike. It was very hot. Um, typically, bikes are sent out with fuel at 15 degrees below ambient. It allows them to cram about a third of a litre more fuel into the bike. And typically, it costs about a third of a litre to do the lap to get to the grid. So the thing doesn't um, over, over, overflow. It, to me, looks like something was going on with the fuel tank. People are rushing around a bit. And there are people definitely trying to be in the way of the camera. It's worth going to have a look. So just to explain to people, I'm sorry to, to say this, and it sounds like I'm teaching people how to suck eggs. Hotter it is, the more the fuel expands, it leaks. Correct. And I think that's what happened on the grid. I don't think it was of massive importance to what came afterwards. But it does show you that Honda is running that bike absolutely full of fuel. And that means they think they're going to need it. They're going to burn it. So Marquez, I mean, you know, he was doing amazing lap times. He was spinning the bike up. All of that uses fuel. And Honda clearly knew that was going to happen. And that, that bike was absolutely full to the brim. If you don't go as fast, you don't need as much fuel. It's fairly simple. It's, um, mm, but, and you save a little bit of weight. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. But it's what happened later on that, that it's what happened later on that, um, fascinates me um you know marquez got it wrong he went wide he ended up doing some motocrossing through a sand trap now i am pretty convinced that honda had one of the tire cooling wings on his swing arm at the start of the race um underneath the belly pan well it's actually attached to the swing arm but it, you see okay. it uh, at the back of the belly pan and it just looks like a little vertical strut on their version you can see it far easier on the Ducatis and the KTMs. Um, but it was definitely there before he went motocrossing. And I'm sure I saw it getting ripped off in the middle of the motocrossing bit. If you, if you go back to that first race and watch him zooming through, about the point where he gets the bike fully upright, you can see a U-shaped black thing in the dirt. And I'm fairly convinced that was his wing. Now, you can convince me that some teams, Ducati, Aprilia, a few others, would run a wing on their swing arm because other people were doing it even if they couldn't measure a major difference. If it's on a works Honda, it's because it works and it makes a difference. <laughs> it's data-driven, <laughs> yeah. Spalders. So, before he went motocrossing, he had what we call a tire cooling device. In the end, it's a wing. It holds the tire down, it stops it spinning. It gives you more grip. And after that, he didn't have it. And something like 15 laps later, in the middle of an absolutely amazing rush through the field, he crashed again. And I don't know if it made a difference. I've no way of knowing. 
but nobody else seems to have commented on the fact that he crashed on a motorcycle that didn't have all the equipment on it that it did at the start of the race. It's got to be possible that one of the little things that caused that accident was no wing. And the fact that he'd thrashed through from the back of the field and given the tyre an absolute whipping and it was the hottest day they've ever had in Europe and woy, 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 yes. It, all, the, all the factors stacked up. Yeah, it all, all stacked up and in the end it's cost Honda their magic rider. Because, I mean, you know, that, that arm isn't just broken. It's pretty much shattered. So that's where Honda are. Let's move on to Yamaha, shall we? And let's also go back to Hareth, Neil. They have their four riders, but already they've lost three engines, an engine each from those four riders. Now, Yamaha are allowed five engines. All of the grid are allowed five engines per rider per year, except KTM and Aprilia, who are still being given their uh, concessions of two extra engines to give them a foot up to try and make them more competitive. And just to explain, if you then get uh, some podiums, you get you score some points, three f- points for first, two for second, one for... And when you score enough points, they take those two extra engines away and some testing concessions away as well, together with tyres. You lose the testing concessions immediately. You've got six points within two years. Yeah. KTM, for the record, now have four. Uh, but you use you keep the engines to the end of the year, so that both yeah. KTM and Aprilia, I think, have got their extra yeah. two extra engines. Yes, they they they've got their seven for the year. So Yamaha, I'm saying they've got five engines per rider, but they've lost three of those, essentially twenty engines already. Catararo being the man who hasn't lost an engine, is he waiting for smoke? Well, yeah. What what they appear to have done? What what they appear to have done? is the engines that were used at Hareth have been parked. The ones that are blown up um, have all gone back to Japan and been taken apart, and clearly somebody now knows what the problem is. Um, They're telling us it's an exhaust temperature sensor. Now, I'm from a generation where MotoGP teams have been telling us porkies as to why engines have gone wrong forever. I mean, in the old days, it was the uh, throttle cable had broken. Um, that moved onwards to an electrical problem. Um, the electrical problem usually was, back in the old days, a conrod coming through the crankcases and poking the magneto off the back of the motor. Um, you know, it, it, they're not going to tell you what's really going on. I cannot believe an exhaust temperature sensor is causing those problems. Um, unless... It was an exhaust temperature that temperature sensor that didn't tell them their engines were grievously overheating. Now, the Yamaha has always had slight heating problems. In, a, in the end, it's got four cylinders in line blanking off the back of the radiator. It's not an easy engine to cool. And we had the hottest race they've ever had. It's entirely possible they cooked the motors. So just to explain what Neil's saying, the radiator exhaust the hot air coming out of the radiator then hits the front of the block and it's so tight it's almost got nowhere to go so it doesn't flow around it very easily no exactly and and they got away with it for a while back in the bridgestone days because the balance of pressure needed to keep the tires working with with bridgestones was more placed to the rear so you could actually run the front wheel literally half an inch further forward than you used to and it just gave them that extra air capacity through the radiators that made the difference here we are with michelin again and absolutely they're crammed for space and we had a hot day and it's noticeable they blew up two uh, three engines but each rider has not used none of the yamaha riders has used their hareth race one engines again i'm sure they're not broken well rossi's was no one of them was but they haven't used the ones they did use Whatever sorry, they used the, the at other, Hareth, yes, the other one, yeah, because once you, yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 whatever they used at Hareth has not been reused. So I think they've cooked them, and that sort of thing you could end up uh, piston rings glazed, lack of compression. But the core of the problem is that they basically tried to answer everybody's criticisms of the fact that the bikes weren't quick enough. They tried to make more power, so they've added compression. They'll have, they'll have, they'll have made camshafts. 
that are more aggressive. Um, nice power bands from motors tend to come from camshafts that are beating the valve gear to death. They try and open the valves quicker and keep them open as long as possible, then shut them as violently as possible so you get both mid-range and top end. All of this works the components to millimeters of their life. And that, in the high temperatures, I suspect has just been too much. What Yamaha will now be doing is trying desperately to work out what they can do that will either recover those engines. You know, I can imagine that back in, in, in Japan, they're putting engines through the same stresses, working out what the damage probably is, and trying to work out, I mean, when we started with the limited number of engines, Yamaha were washing engines out with an acid to get all the, um, the wrong types of, of, of pollutants out of the motors before the next oil change. I can believe they're going through that process again, desperately trying to work out what they can put into those motors that will recover them to something like their original performance. Without breaking the seal. Without breaking the seal. If they have to, they might have to run another engine out, but that means, like Rossi did all those years ago, they have to start from pit lane. That was with a Ducati. But um, Yamaha's never had to do it before. And right now... The rider's job is to win as much as they possibly can before they have to go back and use those engines. But Yamaha won those first two Hareth Grand Prix and arguably the wrong rider, in inverted commas. Uh, then we saw in Brno, Franco Morbidelli leading, leading, leading. And yet Vinales was nowhere, nowhere in Brno and Rossi was a kind, of, kind of in the middle. What's gone wrong with Yamaha Blue? Well, no, it's not so much Yamaha Blue. It's the three works bikes have got different chassis to Morbidelli. Morbidelli was told at the start of the year, sorry, budgets have changed. It's got a bit tighter. We haven't got the money to build four of the 2020 bikes anymore. And we've got this massive container full of half-used 2019 parts. You're going to have that. On a Sunday in Brno, on a bumpy track with not a lot of grip, the 2019 chassis was better. It didn't wear out the tyre. It didn't stress the tyre. And that decision has knocked back the works team. I mean, it knocked back Vinales. I mean, all his old problems came back to haunt him, not able to push himself in the first couple of laps. On a Yamaha, if you're not in the lead at the end of the first lap, you're in trouble. And Vinales has always struggled with that. And here we were at Brno, and all of those nightmares came straight back into him. Not good at all. Not, Not good, good at all. And likewise, it wasn't good for Andrea Davizioso, the works Ducati team. Let's just do the works Ducati team first, if we could, Spalders. Terrible qualifying, and then he ended up 11th and 12th in the race. He was the invisible man in the Czech Republic. He was. I mean, he's been complaining about the front of the bike for years. And, and I must admit, I've been a bit flippant about it. Because, I mean, I look at the Ducati and there's all these wings hung off the front designed to hold the front end down under acceleration. Makes a big difference, you know. You, the, the, the aero that works gives you power, off the, power and acceleration ability off all the corners. If you can put up with the fact that those same wings are going to push the front end down even when you leaned over and the holy grail of motorcycle aerodynamics at the moment is a wing that you can get to stall at over 45 degrees of lean that works perfectly upright um clearly ducati have said well that, look dovi we we, we 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 can't really deal with it because we're giving you you know that problem is caused by all the stuff that gives you the power on the straights or gives you the ability to use your power on the straights. Now it's come home to haunt them. They've got a rear tyre with more grip. He's already upset with the front end, but now they've got a rear tyre that's pushing the front end even more. And then we turn up at a circuit without any grip, and his, his world just dissolved. And then that, you can't have a number one in a team having their head dissolve, especially not in the middle of a contract <laughs> negotiation as torturous as the one they seem to be having. <laughs> I mean, I think we, I honestly believe we saw Dovi retire, basically. Yeah, Simon touched on that in the previous podcast. Yeah, yeah. Was this the, the day? Was this the day? However, let's turn it 
180 degrees the other way. Saturday afternoon, Johan Zarco pole position by a third of a second. Wow. Ah, wonderful. wonderful. It's just brilliant. A year ago, he was picking up the clothes out of his motorhome at the Bruneau paddock before he beetled off home. He was he was a he was on that cusp of never see him again and he'll be he'll be he'll be fitting garage doors for the rest of his life. Or wow, he's on pole position to offer it's just a fairy tale. Yeah, and it's a it is a fairy tale. Um but it's one that it's one that bears a bit of analysis and thought. You know, he's a bloke who can clearly ride, but everything's got to be right for him. He's also a bloke that clearly cannot communicate what he needs. He tells people what, what he wants, and he waits for them to give it to them. And if you've got engineers who are more interested in you making up for the flaws in your machine, he's not your man. Now, when he was at Yamaha, he excelled. And he excelled on one particular chassis. And I could spot that chassis. It was different to all the others. It had welds and metal plates in different places. And it's Lorenzo's last chassis. And I started asking around. And the more information you got in, it was clearly that clear that Zarco was essentially Lorenzo II in riding style. He may not be Lorenzo II in mental strength and everything else, but he most certainly is Lorenzo II in riding style. Used the same data, copied the same setup, rode the bike the same way. And while he was there, Yamaha went through all sorts of problems with their new chassis, and he was offered all of the chassis to ride. None of the works teams liked that particular chassis. He ended up with it, and he kept it for a second year. So all the way through his Tech 3 career, he ran the same chassis. I'm sure he has some settings different to Lorenzo, but the core piece of metal that he chose to ride out of all of the things that Yamaha could give him, he stuck with. At the start of last year, you hear stories, oh, you know, this chassis, the, 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 the Malaysian team's going to get the work stuff and everything else. So I walked down thinking, okay, we've, we've, we've lost that my old friend, the, the Lorenzo chassis. And I get to Quartararo's bike. <laughs> Waving at is. you. Yeah. So, <laughs> pretty much. And he ran it all the way through to Assen. I mean, all those first performances for Quartararo were that same chassis. And something happened at Assen, but he came out with a work chassis at Assen. And you think, okay. And then you look at Vignali's bike, and there's the chassis waving at me again. And he won the race on it. So there was something special. There was something different about that chassis. Anyway, you then watch Zarco off with a nightmare at KTM, where he's simply incapable of receiving the messages they were giving him. You know, it's not about being rough and tough and... And, and going out there regardless, he needed a bike that talked to him in a particular way and he wasn't getting it. They flicked him, he flicked them, whatever. It didn't work. It was a good thing for everybody. He went to Honda and clearly they wanted to see what he could ride, see if they could help them with the way Lorenzo was working things. But they weren't able to fix their bike for Lorenzo and they weren't able to fix their bike for Zarco. He's on the market the best place he could end up on was a bike that Lorenzo liked. And the 2019 Ducati, which he's now sitting on, is the bike that Ducati brought out at the end of Lorenzo's two years. And it's, it, you know, I don't know how it is right for Lorenzo. It is noticeably higher than it was when Lorenzo turned up there, like 25, 30 mil higher. Uh, it is a very specific motorcycle. But what Ducati have done is they've put him on a bike built for Lorenzo and they've given him a crew that understand how he works. His, his, his crew chief is Marco Rigamonti. Marco has come through the Ducati school. He went off to Suzuki with Iannone. He'd looked after Iannone in Ducati. I mean, if there was ever an education in looking after a difficult rider, Marco's had it. <laughs> um Similar things as well. I don't think, uh, I don't think Iannone says what he wants in a particularly easy to understand fashion. But Marco's got used to providing it, and Marco has understood that he's got to look after this Lorenzo-style rider in a certain way. He's, I'm sure, he's sitting there with all Lorenzo's data, and he's trying setups on this bike that Lorenzo would have liked. But more, there's more to it than that. 
the first time I saw a rider who, when I really understood that some just don't understand what they need, but when they get it, they can do something absolutely fantastic, was when Ruben Schaus was with riding in the same team as Neil Hodgson in Ducati. And Ruben, no, it was with Troy Bayliss, sorry, with Bayliss. And Ruben suddenly came out with a whole bunch of races where he was absolutely fantastic, then fell away again, you know. And if you got things right for Ruben, he was a really good rider. I mean, when he went to GPs, it was unfortunately in a team that was pretty underfunded, but he was still Rookie of the Year. The man who I first came across who was like that was Cadalora. He, you just knew, apparently the mechanics told me, I wasn't in the team, but the mechanics would say, he'd walk in on a Thursday, we knew if we were going to win the race. It was that oh, binary. We knew if he'd walk in on Thursday that we weren't going to win the race. But yes, likewise... He walks in up tight or he walks up loose. Yeah. But the thing... Let me finish with Ruben. Yeah. Because I watched Ruben and, you know, you watch his career and it, it eventually fell apart. But who's the new team manager in Avintia where Zarco is? Ruben Zaus. Ruben Zaus. <laughs> so he's got a crew chief who knows how to look after people like him and he's got a team boss who is like him. They're not being nasty to him. They're cuddling him on a bike that he knows how to ride. But then you look at a Biaggi and the way that Biaggi worked. He needed to have the umbrella held as he walked around the paddock. And Lorenzo was very similar. He would build, build, build on his own self-belief, which nurtured confidence, which was belief, which was confidence, which was belief. Dung, 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 dung. China, bang, crash. Laguna, bang, crash in 08. Terrible crashes, spine chilling. And then he was down. And then when he came back up, Lorenzo. he'd come back. This is Lorenzo. And then when he'd come back yep. up, he'd come back up. So ironically, not only does Zarco like a Lorenzo bike, the actual metal and carbon fibre, but it sounds like he's very similar mentally. He just needs the warm arm of a team around him, you're doing a good job, fantastic, keep going, keep going, we'll cover that for you, don't worry, rather than ride the bloody bike faster. Yes, he needs to be stroked and, and looked after like a good racehorse. I mean, that wonderful expression he used in Park Ferme, you know, Ducati, I'm so pleased to present to them a podium. It, it's, it says everything about the way his brain works. And I'm not saying he's not, you know, he isn't a Rossi. He isn't a Marquez. But he is very, very quick on a motorcycle when things are right. And that trip on the long lap, <laughs> that the most wonderful, wonderful single piece of riding I've seen for years. All I could think of for... Marquez included. All I could think of was Olympic skating for a moment. But, yes, yes he... Uh, Dirty track, off track. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's used yeah. it. And he just plonks it on its side. Yeah. It. Let us not forget, he is a motor. He is a a motor world, world champion. You know Ooh. they don't give those away. No, no. But but I think the worst thing Ducati could do now is change the deal. The arm round the shoulder. The arm round the shoulder. He doesn't need the pressure that Dovi's under. But they've got to come to terms with the fact that the bloke in their third level team just could win a whole bunch of races for them later this year. So is it still a Yamakati? Yes, and I think the, the I don't think the current bike's a million miles off. But the two blokes sitting on it, one signed for KTM, and and you know he's clearly a bit upset with the way he got there, so he was probably quite happy watching Binder win. And the other one is in career negotiations with a team with which he's unhappy, where he doesn't get on with the chief engineer. Um, you know, rumour has it that he hasn't spoken to Dalinia for years. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you know, wherever they are now, stop, 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 stop. have a rethink. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're wasting um, petrol at that point. Yes, exactly. But they have got Zarco. Just let it, let it happen. But as we saw in Bruno. It was Tardozzi and Chibati who were arguing Zarco's case, and I thought that quite nice for a bloke who 12 months ago was on the scrap heap. Yeah, absolutely. But you've got to remember, Chibati's been around forever. Um, but he understands what he's looking at with a rider. Um, you know, it's not, you know, all the politics aren't down to him. There are things happen at Ducati that 
come from outside the race department and we can't stop that. Um, but I am rather suspecting that if you ever wanted it underlined that they shouldn't have lost, lost Lorenzo, the result on Sunday said it. And the result on Sunday was Brad Binder with the KTM being victorious at Bruno. Wow, what a start, what a race. He was always there in the first couple of Grand Prix, but for this and that and whatever happened at the start at Hareth 2 and he went off on Hareth 1. Um, they had been testing at Bruno earlier this year, one of their designated test tracks. So, yes, they had a bit of a clue of what would be going on. But even so, he still won the race by five and a quarter seconds. KTM, technically, the main difference is they've got a steel chassis, not an aluminium one. One swallow doesn't make a summer, Neil, but they are going in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, we've all sat there for years. I've sat there for years. Aluminium is the material to have. And, and the reason for this is... A motorcycle suspension, when it's leaned over, is that the chassis has to bend. And it has to bend in a very specific way, a very specific amount, and in a very specific fashion. It's also got to be a lot more rigid under braking and a, a lot more resistance to twist under acceleration. Because you've got nearly 300 horsepower going down one side of the swing arm at the back. You know, that's not easy to do counteract. Plus, you want to come into corners and stand it on its nose. It's noticeable that Binder was overtaking on the brakes. If you watch him going into the corners, the front flutters, and then he hits the brakes, and he can, he can outbrake people going into corners. That bike is very stable on the brakes, and I believe that when it leans over, it's still flexible enough to be nice to the tyres, because clearly it was being nice to the tyres. There was a helicopter shot of the penultimate corner, that left-hander before the final right, and he was up behind Morbidelli, and he just turned it in. Morbidelli's washing out, and Binder was just straight there. And I went, wow, I haven't seen a difference between motorcycles like that cornering in a very long time. No, that was he had he had tyre, he had braking stability. I mean, he's a good enough rider to use both of those, which is important. But the bike was clearly absolutely in its element at Bruneau. Yes, they've tested, and Pedrosa is their test rider, and believe me, he is one pernickety rider. But that's what you need. You need somebody looking for the perfect situation. And where that bike has gone in the last couple of years is well, it started off with steel tubes, and there were two rows of tubes separated by about 100 mil, a bit more, 150 mil of lattice work. And that slowly got closer and closer together. And what came out at Valencia was a single beam of steel, not 50 mil section. I suspect it's not even a, a, a round tube. I suspect it's a U section. But it's very, very thin, but very, very rigid under braking. And I think that although it will be what Stoner used to call when he rode steel tube Ducatis, kind of springy, I think you can probably make steel be more rigid under braking yet still allow it to flex under lean even more once you get down to these extremes and we are absolutely at extremes as the lean levels have gone up the lateral rigidity the ability to bend has has just gotten down as you know neil people other people might not but i was in that team in in 2017 and we left barcelona middle of june and the team went to have a test at Aragon, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It was a really hot test. And we got a team WhatsApp. Somebody put up a picture. And there was either six or eight different specs of chassis in the garage. Mm. No, I can absolutely believe it. I mean, I could see some <laughs> of the changes, but not all. Um, it was just a sea of orange. Yes. And, and, you know, people say, how much does this game cost? When you're trying to get the bike right this is a number from eight or nine years ago, the general thought was it's about 50 million a year. When you've got the bike right, the very last thing you do is disturb it. So, you, but you're then down to 20, 25 million a year. I mean, KTM have been throwing money at this, but there's no two ways about it. This latest version of their chassis has actually got to the point where you just, you could easily put together a case of saying, actually, 
on a bumpy racetrack on a hot day in the Czech Republic in the middle of August, steel is the material of choice. We will find out by the end of this year whether it is actually the material of choice. But they clearly had a chassis that not only gripped, it braked well, and it didn't overpower the tyres under lean. So I suppose what you're saying is where Bridgestone were at in the early 990cc era, which was we knew that Bridgestone would win at Rio. We knew they would win at Mategi. We knew they would win somewhere else. They had to turn those three victories into a season, and they did that when they won with Valentino Rossi. So they've got to make it work on all the tracks, is what you're saying. Yeah, well, they did it when they won with Ducati. I mean, essentially, what you're talking there is that the Michelin business model in those years was to send a whole slew of tyres to the racetrack, gain lots and lots of information during Friday and Saturday, have a big powwow at about three o'clock on Saturday afternoon and decide what the perfect combination of rubber was, send the telex back to Clermont Ferrand. The tyres were manufactured overnight to the perfect spec and delivered by Renault Espace at six o'clock on Sunday morning. Bridgestone won when Michelin couldn't do that. And Bridgestone learned how to win at long distance with a gamble on spec at least two weeks in advance. And when they finally got came to on their pomp and actually started to really win things, they had a test team going around Europe with Ito as a test rider, working out what tyre worked on a track a month before the, the, the race meeting, producing the tyres, flying them to Europe, and winning with them. And, and to do that, they had to have a breadth of performance way bigger than Michelin's very focused tyre. Even now... The Bridgestone, the, the, the Michelins are very temperature sensitive. The Bridgestone would tolerate a much greater band. It only went slightly bad for Bridgestone's reputation when they chose to have a particular spec for the control tyre. But when they were racing against another tyre company, they were just amazing. Which, which brings us back, actually, to, to Bruno. I mean, it, we get away for a bit here, but you've got to remember, the last time that Bruneau really featured as a problem for Repsol was back in 2008 when Michelin had not got the tyre specification right. They turned up with a test rider who just had not pushed the tyres to their limit. Bridgestone turned up absolutely cluttered off with everything. Pedrosa, I think, qualified 16th out of about 18 on the grid and finished about 15th out of 17 on the grid. And immediately after that, Honda dumped Michelin. They went to Bridgetown. They said, we're out. And that's that's the sort of changes that are going to happen, I think, as a result of the, the race at Jerez and the race at Bruneau. They had a press conference at Mizano. They changed tyres mid-season. That was yes, quite something. Absolutely. Yeah, contracts, what? Throw those away. Throw those away. Okay, that's four of the six factories that we have touched on. So next up... Let's talk about Suzuki. Their season didn't start well. Rins crashing at uh, at Hareth, uh, didn't race at uh, Hareth 2, and yet he comes back and he's fourth at Bruno. Wow. Another wow. Another wow. Absolutely. And, but there's very little I can say technically about Suzuki. The bike is right. This was their year. The bike was there it was handling brilliantly the electronics are sorted Guntelli's done a fantastic job as a test rider the test team's absolutely done a brilliant job all the stuff's there got a new chassis if you look carefully they're now silver last year last two years they've had a carbon black reinforced chassis they finally worked out how to make the same chassis even better without the carbon reinforcing and it just fell apart you know the bit that mattered finishing the race didn't happen people tried too hard the conditions were not quite right for them and it's just dissolved and it's nothing technical the bike is right the team is right but you know if they didn't have bad luck they wouldn't have any luck at all they wouldn't they wouldn't and uh well let's see how they go on let's see how they go on uh rins bit of a ledge bit of a ledge well he's always going to be a bit of a ledge in my book after that victory at silverstone last year total ledger no absolutely and and that's what they're capable of doing this year and and Mir, you know at the start of the year we're rating him higher than rins and i still think he is 
He has the potential. His initial laps at Bruneau. When he left Bruneau last, it was in an ambulance with bruised lungs. Big aircraft crash. He'd just gone off yeah. a cliff. The end, you know, he'd just gone off the end of the straight and over mm. a cliff. Yet he turned out and he was fastest in FP1. Wow. What can you possibly say? <laughs> was he fast? Certainly yeah. right up at the top. You know, amazing. Yeah. Super, super. And um, going south from Bruneau down to Nuwale, talk about Aprilia. And like Yamaha, they've lost some engines as well in 2020 for MotoGP. What? What can they do? I mean, you touched on that with Yamaha, what they can do technically to look into why they lost the engines. But, you know, Alicia Spargaro has been banging on about this is the bike, this is the bike. Is it? It still could be. They blew an engine in the test. They didn't blow an engine in the race. They'd already backed them off. They knew they had a problem. So the engines they're using are still their first two. They haven't done whatever Yamaha's done to those race engines. They haven't done. And clearly, they've gone back to the factory and said, okay, what was the problem? Was it just too hot? Quite possible. Was it too hot and we got too much ignition timing and we've got too much compression? What can we do about it? You can't unseal the engine. You can't redesign the engine. Well, no, actually, wrong about that. They can, but they throw two engines away when they do. Yes, yeah, so they have more engines. They have open, open redesign, but... If you look at the way it works, they get one shot at it to then have a decent supply of motors. I think what they've learned to do is to change the ignition timing, change the fueling, change all the stuff electronically that you can possibly change to give the engines a bit more life. Because clearly, Alish had raced power this time and he was able to use it. And he used it, I think, extremely well. Okay. So, since the last podcast that I did with Simon, which was the day after Bruno, there has been another circuit added to the 2020 MotoGP calendar in the shape of, uh, of Portugal, Circuit of Algarve, Porto Mayo, new for MotoGP. So, that's an extra Grand Prix. It's going to be 15 in total. But we're not doing flyways. Uh, it's very warm. Yes, we're in Europe at this time of year anyway. Is there anything that the teams might be doing that's absolutely circuit-focused, considering that some Grand Prix are back-to-back? -back. They're at the same number of... They're at the same physical piece of tarmac. The variation is what I'm saying, Neil, has gone. Can you fine-tune a bike just for those remaining circuits? You can, I mean, it is quite possible decisions are being made on chassis um, where you might say, well, you know, we, we, we got this particular chassis because that circuit there really required it and, it and you no longer have that circuit. And, I mean, Phillip Island was a circuit that a lot of people would have, to, you could almost build a special chassis for Phillip Island. We're not going there now. So do... And, and if, I can, if I can correct myself from earlier... When we went to those three flyway races, Japan, Australia, Malaysia, there'd sort of be less spare parts? Yeah, not really. I mean, no, not really. Yes and no. Less, fle less flexibility because you haven't got the truck is what I'm saying. Possibly, but you are going to Japan and most of the teams are from Japan. So you could argue that the spares are not an issue there. But but yes. Only two are from Japan. <laughs> uh, three are from Japan, yeah. but never mind. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, th I think there's a possibility you could do things slightly differently. But what matters to me is that some of the bikes are easy to set up. Yamaha's historically, you know, by race day, they're as good as they're going to be. Honda have learned also that you build a bike you can get right in the allotted practice time. But the Ducatis, and I don't know about KTM, um, we've never been in this situation before. But Ducati historically have been able to go faster on Mondays than they did on race day when we have a test. And that's not good. It means you've got a very complicated setup procedure and a setup machine. But now we've got a second race at the same circuit. So theoretically, one of the winners out of having back-to-back -back races should be Ducati. But because they've got other problems, we're not seeing that. You know, so it, yes, it is definitely changing the game. Uh, Aprilia, again... More time at one track. The bike is so fresh. I'm sure that's making a you know that will make a big difference to them. Um, and as I said, they're the ones that have got away with the engine problem. I think increasingly, it's just looking at Yamaha might have built themselves a big problem. That extra race is it 
yes, it's more TV time, it's more advertising, it's more income for Dorna, but uh, is, this, is there another message in that extra race? Well, to me, there is, there's two, two things. One is, uh, you know, can we have an extra engine because an extra race? Unfortunately, under the original procedure, we had seven engines with 20 races, and actually you could go 21 races because with seven engines... Six of those engines have got to do three races, and one would do two, yeah, to get seven engines last 20. So you could do 21, and all that happens is the sixth engine has to do three like the rest. Uh, the same procedure happens here with 15 races. It's the same number of engines as 14. It's just that now you've got to do the same number of races on each engine. So it's not going to help Yamaha. But I would observe that, unfortunately, we are living in a very unpleasant time and it would appear that a certain bug we've had a problem with seems to like cold weather. And it will be cold in Europe at the end of November. And I'm really, really hoping we don't get that bug back at full strength. But looking at what's happening in Australia at the moment, I do wonder. So if I was racing, I would not be assuming we're going to do all of the races. So if you're a motorcycle racer in any of the three Grand Prix championships, you need to start leading that championship and stay at the lead from about round 10. Lead the championship at round yeah, 10 this and is... not think you've got four in your pocket. No, no. All that fat's Just gone. Just in case. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure very few people ever sit and think we'd rather win, we'd rather lead at, you know, the last few races. No, you, you're doing your business now. Every single race is the last race of the season. It's like the old wet race thing when it was dry and there's a rain cloud coming, lead over the line. Yes. In case yeah. we go a lap back. Yeah. Interesting times. Interesting times. Uh, Neil, thank you so very much. Pleasure. Neil Spaulding, he is at Spaulders and also MotoGPTechnology.com to catch up with his third edition book all about the technology that is up and down the pit lane of a MotoGP paddock. Do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from, and you'll get the notifications when they automatically download. Do go to the-race.com for all the latest motorsport news, both two- and four-wheel. In the meantime, from myself, Toby Moody, and Neil Spaulding, thanks for joining us. We'll speak to you soon.